When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Out of the gate, ready to go. OutKick 360 underway from 6th and Peabody. Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, with Old Smokey Moonshine and Yeehaw Beer. Alongside Chad Withrow and Paul Kuharski, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Big show today. Alan Shipnuck, the author of the biography on Phil Mickelson, entitled Phil, where the quotes originated of what Phil said was an off-the-record chat about the PGA Tour, about the Saudi-funded league overseas, and more. We will chat with him in 20 minutes. Great conversation with some in-depth and uh, some fun stories as well behind the scenes on uh, what is a, a pretty good, uh, so far, uh, biography that we had an advanced copy of, and I've been able to skim through it over the last five hours or so. And um, over the first four chapters, it's very good. I also skipped ahead. He does address everything that took place over the last three months in the final chapter of the book. So we will chat with Alan. That's coming up at 2.20 Central Time. Uh, which should be a, a fun conversation. John McClain today in an hour with the latest NFL news, notes, headlines, and more. PK was with the Tennessee Titans this morning at the voluntary OTAs. We'll get some details in a moment. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Big, big evening coming up for Chad Withrow, Coach Chad Withrow and Young Evie. Hey, it's a big evening, but it's an even bigger day. Hutton, I know you like to celebrate birthdays about as much as I do, so I'll make this very quick. <laughs> Happy birthday to our very Thank own you. Jonathan Hutton. Thank you. Um, he's turns 30 today. He's really growing up before our very eyes. Yeah. But in all seriousness, am, happy, uh, birthday. happy birthday. I am 30, and the number 30 is significant. I'm 30 years away from reaching the age of Ronnie Munt. Okay. 68. Yep. So, 68! Uh, it's going to be a big day and um, a championship night tonight, Paul, for one Chad Withrow. He's, he's more nervous than Evie. Any words of wisdom for me, Paul, tonight? Just go get him. Say, be, be, be the same guy you've been the whole time. Now, Hutton, i got to know if there's cake at your house, first off. Because no, no cake. As a seed eater, a salad eater, <laughs> what, uh, will you have steak tonight? Uh, no cake. We, um, um, seafood tonight. Seafood. I'm trying out a new restaurant, yeah. Uh, but um, I'll let you guys know tomorrow how it goes. Okay. Chad, I, I think you'll take care of business, no problem. Um, well, there'll be cake tonight for the kids, I'm sure. Well, I was just informed. I was looking at our, our group text, and uh, – <laughs> They're going to have first place and second place trophies for the entire team there at the concession oh. stand. So they said there's a game after you guys, but they know to wait until after the game where you can hand out, you know, where the parents can see down, down the baselines or whatever, where you're going to hand out trophies. So uh, here's hoping that we are handing out, I'm handing out first place trophies tonight. You know I, where I, I, told, I told you guys on Friday, by the way, I was nervous about the semifinal because that's where we eliminated in fall ball after having a great season. So I just thought, get past this round, and then whatever happens, happens. The pressure to me has been lifted. Go out there and play the way we have all year. We'll be just fine. You know what I just thought? Whenever he said, they, I just received a group text that there's first and second place trophies. 
Chad would be of the mindset of, oh, there is no second place. <laughs> I, 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 we, we, we lose it's tonight. It's fine for seven-year-olds to accept a, second place. Uh, well, it's a, it's a five- and six-year-old league, and we have some girls who turn <laughs> seven in this. But can you imagine if I'd get the boxes of trophies throw them. out there? Not even throw them. Like, set them out. Like, well, the league has given us second-place trophies. Girls, and here's what I say to that. This guy's got lighter fluid in his back uh, pocket the whole time. Who knew? <laughs> and just light it on fire on the field in front of them. This is what I think about second place. And all the girls start crying. Yeah. And they get singed eyebrows or a pony, <laughs> ponytails. I mean, and it's, run and scream. We have to remember that while the, these girls are 20. enjoying their success and they know when things are disappointing when they're at bat or they make a bad play in the field, I still have to tell them if they won or lost when the game, <laughs> when the umpire just calls the game. I'm like, we won, and they celebrate after that. So I got to remind myself of that. Tonight, hopefully, they're more conscious of it. But well, they the, won't. the parents, the parents are the ones that are, they're very cognizant of that scoreboard on both sides. So that that's I, I the, feel like I'm playing more to the parents than the this kids. This is the rare league that started keeping score mid-season. Like normally it, it's, you know, you go without the score and then the following year you pick up with that and you, I, I appreciate that. Well, this league was even more advanced than that. They don't, not only started doing the scoreboard middle of the season, uh, they changed the rules mid-season where there's no tee. We played T-ball oh. half the season. <laughs> it was coach pitch to T-ball and then at the halfway point to get the girls ready for Pee-wee, which is the next league, okay. you pull the tee away. So you get five pitches. You got to hit it fair in those five pitches. And if you don't, you're out. So I, I could throw five bad pitches, and my girls are going to swing it all. It wouldn't matter. They're out after five pitches. So they, they even changed up the rules, which I like that for the girls that are they're moving up. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily like it for the four- and five-year-olds that are starting out that have another year in that league where they'll go back to the tee the first half yeah, of the year next weird. year and then go back into it. That's weird. I'm rooting for the red team. I, uh, I wish you the best. Thank and you. I look forward to the text tonight. Big game against the Rockies tonight. So I've always uh, disliked the Rockies, but not as much as uh, your team. I dislike teams that are purple or teal, just in general. Well, that was the newfangled the thing. The Jags, so you hate all this uh, expansion teams. The Jags, the it, Panthers, it, the Rockies. It's an expansion color. Those are expansion. It's a Mariners? '90s expansion. What about the Mariners? Uh, the Mariners, uh, not a big fan of that either. Uh, the Marlins is another one I would add to that. It was the 90s fad. Is, it 90s is there a 90s expansion? I was thinking but the, about this the, the other Seattle day. Seattle was a '70s expansion. This team, may right? be a future column for me at Outkick. But I was thinking about the worst trends, but specifically the worst, the best uniform that went to the worst uniform, the biggest step down. Brewers in made uniform a big change. Step down. Two jumped to mind. I actually saw someone post this, and it was a side by side. When BYU, they're now back to the old blue with the blue circle and the Y in the middle, which it's is a classic great. uniform. It's classic, but it's but not the great. colors are great. You know, just royal blue, white, right? In the '90s, they they flipped. I think Vegas gold. It was like navy blue and Vegas gold. And I can show you the uniform. It's terrible. But they went from what they won the national championship in in 1984, that uniform, and then the mid to late 90s, they went to a Vegas gold and navy blue and not the classic BYU blue. And also, the worst example, Pistons. The Grant Hill Pistons went from a very classic look, Isaiah Thomas bad boys, red or blue, Red lettering, Pistons, or Detroit across the chest. Red stripes. They went back to that for the 4 team that won it all also. But they had that stretch from probably 94 to 02 where they had that teal uniform with the horse head on it 
It was horrific. So you know my rule. I can't think of a worse step down in uniform. My rule would apply to both of these situations. If you win big in a uniform, then you never change it. So if BYU wins a national championship in that, that's your uniform. And certainly the Pistons, who who had a, a you know period of time where they were the best team in the NBA, you then don't change your uniform ever, ever. Once you have a run of big-time success, that locks in. Why did they change their uniform? Was it the new? It was just the sell-to-sell thing. I I feel like the Charlotte Hornets sold 80 million starter jackets in like 1993. because the color. And then everyone decided, hey, we got to change our color to something like that. So there was this early 90s to late 90s fad of if it's a fluorescent teal color or purple, that's the hip color to be. So everyone wanted their uniform. The Toronto Raptors, when they came into existence during this time, had purple uniforms. If you I remember, think, everything that was new was purple or teal. And cartoons. Cartoonish logos. I, I think you're on to something there, but it's a fad that has to go. And if you've won in it, you cannot change it. Well, it's gone. It's just the teams from that era, it remains. Because that's now their colors. They, they picked those colors in a time when it was trendy and, well, that's and new. It's of your time. And now it's not. And they've won since. Yeah. The, the Pistons went back and then won the title. Right. Went when back they went back to the, the, the thing. The, the so normal they've won in it twice. So now you definitely can't change it. Yeah. Hit us up on Twitter at Outkick360. Paul, what were uh, some of the headlines today with uh, the Titans at OTAs? And it's, uh, it'll be a national headline because the last time this man spoke, it was Ryan Tannehill spoke to them. Yeah, Ryan Tannehill came to the podium and started talking uh, before he took a question. He talked for three and a half minutes. And he wasn't done, but he paused, and somebody jumped in with the question. Um, so the three and a half minutes were kind of rambly and unfocused. And he didn't use the word mentor in, in things, but his point was that he did not think the firestorm that what he said uh, about he didn't think it was his job to mentor Malik Willis was warranted. Um, and he thought that uh, it, it was misconstrued and, uh, and, and much too big a deal. He said he wasn't following it, you know, word by word or, or report by report, but he got a general sense of what was going on, and he knew it was, it was big. I asked him at the end, all right, you know, you, you've talked a lot about it. Can you, can you boil it down? What's your sense of your duty? I know Matt Moore did a lot for you. What's your sense of, of mentoring? Uh, Malik, and here's what he said to that. I'm going to be a good teammate. I'm going to support him. I'm going to help, encourage, push him. You know, I think all those things are important things and things that I'm going to continue to do. So he said basically what he said in that initial comment after he said it, I don't think it's my job to mentor him, where he said, but, you know, if... And on the field, they acted like normal, you know, a normal trio of quarterbacks out there. They were talking amongst themselves, gesturing, talking through things. It's the first time we've seen them on the field together. Listen, I told you guys when I came back from the press conference where he said that, that I knew, that, that, you know, and he answered a lot of stuff that day about the Cincinnati game where he was a disaster and, and, and lost the, the game pretty much single-handedly, um, though there were other mistakes made. It was the first time he talked since then. He had a lot to answer for. And as soon as he said that, I knew that he had thrown an M80 out there that was going to blow up. And I knew he didn't really mean it like a 
uh, anti-Malik Willis statement. But it, it blew up, and clearly it bugged the hell out of him, and he was sitting out. I said, you know, if it's bothering you so much, why didn't you call somebody, or why didn't you put something out on social media? It's been, that was May 3rd, today's May 24th, and he said, I didn't think it would serve me particularly well while everybody was still kind of hashing it out for me to barge in. I knew I'd see you guys again in relatively short order. That was the exact time to, to yeah, do that, though. I, I, I agree. Mean, and I was talking with Hutton before. It doesn't, it what doesn't it did hit. is left Malik Willis to answer for it. So I don't think that was the best thought out thing. Yeah, he, he allowed other teammates to hash things out on his behalf, which is what we would fault a lot of uh, players uh, when the going gets tough and they don't speak in the postgame locker room. Um, you know, they allow others to speak for them. That's what Tannehill did here. If he had a problem with what he, how, what he said was being portrayed, uh, speak up before Malik Willis takes to the podium or anyone else in that locker room. A lot of people speak. answered uh, to it. Yeah. Uh, or, or for it. In the Act meantime. like a starting quarterback. Well, guys across that's, the that's league. That's what I would say. Yeah. Act like a starting I mean, quarterback. Guys across the league commented on it. You know, Kyle Pitts is posting about it. You know, different active players in the NFL are, are talking about it. So we'll it. see how people react I don't, to I just this. don't understand his line of thinking of, let me let it become the biggest deal possible on every national show and every TV show that talks about sports. But I, that wasn't the time for me to come in and clarify my statement, <laughs> even though my statement was apparently being misinterpreted. Oh, Justin, I'm going to wait weeks, and then I'll just talk about it randomly when someone asks me about it. Well, next well, time, next I'm time in we front talk. Of the press. Uh, imagine if Dick Saban took that role. <laughs> After what he said about Jimbo Fisher, the very next day, he, he did went an interview. Serious sex in with Bobby Carpenter and addressed it. Um, meanwhile, Ryan Tannehill is going to wait nearly a month before he says, "You know what? It wasn't that. You know, it was it was taken Three out weeks. of context. Uh, yeah, okay, nearly a month." Yep. And, and says, uh, you know, I'll, I'll address it whenever I got back with you guys. Meanwhile, others have been around the media being asked these questions, speaking on behalf of that. It's just, uh, it's, it's an odd response to that. Well, he made he, a story very, by saying it and then right. not saying anything about it. So people can whine and complain about, I can't believe this is a story all you want. The bottom line is it was an unforced error by Tannehill, who's supposed to be a smart guy. He didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say it's not my, my role to mentor him. That was stupid. He shouldn't have offered that up. <clears throat> when he said it, when he saw that it was going to be a big deal, come back and clarify what you mean. Paul, I'm with you. I never believed he was going to be a bad teammate to no, Malik Willis, no. knowing him, knowing his track record. I didn't think he was going to shun the guy or you know, not speak to him. We said it that day that he's going to be fine with Malik Willis. But, again, it's an unforced error, and this goes in line with three unforced errors that lost your team a playoff game to an offseason filled with no-shows, silence, social media posts at bad times, done by an ad agency or not, don't care. Unforced error after unforced error, and that was another one. I don't understand why he waits so long. I thought what he said today was fine and clarifying. I've got no issues with it, but why wait until the next time you do it? And I don't believe that he's not talking to people. He's talking to someone. You can listen to anyone who covers the Titans that's sitting there being a shill for Brian Tannehill the whole time. That's who he's talking to. He's giving his side there, and he's got these mouthpieces that are out there defending well, Ryan no, I Tannehill. Don't, I don't believe Just he's talking to anybody. Just speak publicly. I don't believe he's talking to anybody. I mean, I think people with the team are talking on his behalf, but I don't think he's talking to anybody. He's too comfortable in retreat. You know, he's getting bad-mouthed after the season, and then he comes across as a sympathetic figure when he comes out and says he was in therapy to deal with the loss, which is a bad scar. Well, he served himself better if he makes – listen, I'm against 
a guy going and making an appearance on uh, on Dan Patrick or whatever, but he would have served himself well with that. Or uh, Dan Pompey doing an article at The Athletic, you know, one big piece or, or something. But, uh, you know, you don't have to go do a media tour, but if you if you – in that big span of time between the end of the season and the first press you do, which isn't till what, April or early May, early May, you can do one thing that really serves you well in the meantime. You have to care about public opinion to some degree. You don't have to generally if you're a safe starting quarterback. If you're a starting quarterback coming back to Nashville where the city has turned against yeah. you, it just serves you well. You're making it harder on yourself. When they've drafted a kid who they're hoping, I, I, we would all think, is, is going to replace you in a year, you can do more things to get people back on your side, and he hasn't done those things, well, which is foolish. Well, who's advising him? Uh, well, he, he's – I don't know who's advising him, but he's certainly under – I don't think he's – he's not as dumb to, to not understand what you just said. The draft pick of Malik Willis is a developmental pick, but a pick nonetheless that poses a threat to the future past the next yeah you know, next year six months seventeen games away seventeen games plus playoffs so, away yeah, seventeen there you go so I'm, I'm I look at it like you know the, the response would not have been the same had it just been, we just been running it back with Woodside it would have been the question would have been asked but the response would have been the same and. The Titans are acknowledging that they're at least embracing the future of the time without Ryan Tannehill by selecting Malik Willis. They're open to that conversation. You know, if he has another three-pick game to start week one, the buzz is going to be generated there. But ultimately, the public perception of Ryan Tannehill cannot be changed until postseason play because he's going to be just fine in the regular season. That's what he does. He's been, he's been great for the Titans at quarterback in the regular season. And now it's time to put up in the playoffs. If he does that, he quiets everyone, and none of the last month of chatter with this matters whatsoever. Agreed. Of, 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 of this. Uh, Agreed. I, but yeah, this it, is it what gets talked starts, about now. You know, yeah. this is the story now. Well, he could have easily killed it an hour after the statement. Yeah. I mean, I just don't – he's not so ha- – I admire guys, the opposite of the A.J. Brown approach, right, who's got his ears way out to here and hears and sees everything on social media and what media is saying or sports shows like ours or whatever. I don't like that approach. I admire guys who can stay out of the fray for the most part, but it's also ridiculous to think that Ryan Tannehill, who clearly knew today this had become a national story, didn't understand this was a story until today. He knew shortly after it was a story. Well, I would think PR when it was blowing would have up told on him Twitter, when he walked away. That's PR be a story. would have told him he would have known quickly. This could have been eliminated with a statement or saying something a to tweet. someone. Let's make a tweet very quickly. We, we also haven't heard from tweet. Phil Mickelson minus liking some tweets. Alan Shipnook has a biography out uh, this month on Phil Mickelson entitled "Phil." We chat with Alan Shipnook next on Outkick 360. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer. With over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros, Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. 
and their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless from researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience. Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. Glad you're with us across the OutKick Network. Crew is all here today as we broadcast from 6th and Peabody. It's an anticipated biography, no doubt, and quotes that Phil Mickelson said were off the record to Alan Shipnook. He is included in the book entitled Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. And Alan Shipnick joins us on OutKick 360. Alan, thank you for the time. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. The in parentheses on the title and unauthorized, was that added post these comments or was that always the title? No, that was always going to be the title. You know, I went to Phil, you know, three times face to face and uh, asked him to do interviews for the book. And starting in the uh, summer of 2000 and actually the fall of 2020 into early 2021. And he thought about it and ultimately he declined, which is that was fine. It's his prerogative. And I've had so much access to Phil and the people around him through the years. I didn't really need him. Um, but in the end, as a, a week before the book was due, Phil couldn't resist calling me and um, telling me the real story about his, his dealings with Saudi Arabia. And it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question why he did that. You know, it's been said many times about, about Mickelson is he needs to be the smartest guy in the room. And I think ultimately he couldn't help himself. He was so bothered that he hadn't told me how he outsmarted Jay Monahan, the PJ tour commissioner, and he outsmarted Greg Norman, the front man for the Saudi effort and that he'd gotten all these concessions. He'd won all these victories and um it's revealing about phil you know he, it was clearly on the record he knows that i know that the fact that he would you know when the heat when the heat came back and uh, the blowback he, he tried to wiggle out of it um but um ultimately you know he could have bared his soul to, to any reporter but he the one guy who was writing a book about him and you know he later in his public statement said you know his words were reckless i, I think that was part of the fun for phil you know he's an adrenaline junkie and uh, there was something fun about telling someone something that he probably shouldn't have, but he just he couldn't help himself in the final analysis. So it, it's an interesting part of this book, and it's certainly revealing about who Phil is. And you go into detail in the book on ju- just how on the record that call was uh, with specifics that were said and discussed. And I'm curious, Alan, um, every, sports fans love a great redemption story. Uh, and one of the key points you mentioned in the towards the the end of the book is Tiger Woods. I mean, if anyone doubts that, just look at uh, Tiger's never been more popular. Uh, was that in the back of your mind as this was set to release over the last two months of um, how you wanted to to add on to the end of this biography and 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 point to the last two months of this saga more than maybe the the last thirty years of his career? 
Well, I mean, the book covers it all, you know, and, you know, my intention all along was just to write a very fair and balanced look at a very complex, contradictory uh, personality. And, you know, Phil's done a lot of great things in his life with through large scale philanthropy and, you know, random acts of kindness to fans. And he's been a great mentor to young players on tour and all that's in the book. I mean, I was very happy to celebrate Phil's virtues and, um, at the same time, he's been mixed up in tons of controversy throughout his long career. And there's been a lot of messiness. And that's all in the book, too. So uh, I just kind of want to lay it all out for the readers and they can decide what they think about Phil. It's not it's not my job to legislate their, their feelings about the guy. But, uh, you know, part of me wishes Phil had never called me because, like I said, it, it was the end of the process. The book was done. It was due in one week when he finally elected to, to ring me up. And uh, it already, you know, I'd already set out to what you know i'd accomplished what i set out to do which was write this really fun breezy anecdotal book and there's already some juicy bits in there about his breakup with his caddy uh, bones and about the insider trading with billy walters and all the gambling like there was enough there to people were it was going to create a certain energy which um so no i mean the whole thing about you know phil's uh fall and rise again i mean that 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 was never scripted it just sort of happened and we were able to just get all that in the end of the book before, before I had to go to the printers, but never could have imagined that, that he would get sent into exile for those comments. I mean, in the moment I knew they were, they were pretty juicy, but Phil has talked his way out of so many controversies in the past. And, um, you know, I thought it might be a one or two day story and he, he would, he would wiggle out of it again. Like the, um, but, you know, I think Phil underestimated the emotion around Saudi Arabia, as did I, I mean, the Saudis did, uh, it's the birthplace of 15 of the 9-11 hijackers. They did assassinate a Washington Post reporter who was a resident of the United States. And, you know, in Phil's mind, I think he was being this cagey businessman who was working both sides of the street and getting all this leverage. But for a lot of people, you you, you know, the Saudis' money is very toxic. And when you take it, um, they can't, they, they find that, you know, unforgivable. And I'm not sure if Phil realized how deep that feeling goes. Uh, and then there was the, the element of sneakiness where, you know, he admitted that he was, he was doing these backroom deals um, with the Saudis and in a way that people had no idea how involved he was in helping that rival tour get set up. And so it was the impact of his words, but it was really his actions that is what got Phil in trouble with the tour and with his colleagues because uh, he was set at helping set up a direct competitor to the PGA Tour in secret. And that was really people engulfed. That's what they're mad about. Not They don't really care about the, the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia or that stuff. They may give it lip service, but what they care about is that Phil was, you know, for the player's perspective, he might be taking money out of their pocket, and that was unforgivable. You mentioned uh, Bones McKay, his caddy, uh, who just won with Justin Thomas at the PGA. Uh, how much money do you estimate Phil Mickelson owes Bones McKay? Well, it was told to me with people who have direct knowledge of it. It was, so they had a, you know, they've been partners for, they had a business partnership for 25 years and they were already fairly deep into that when the FedEx Cup debuted. And this was this, this big bonus program for the players at the end of the year. And actually the first year, the money was deferred. Whatever you won went into your retirement account. It wasn't even hard cash. And so all the players and caddies had to kind of figure out how they were going to handle this money from, from the caddy perspective. And so, Phil and Bones had an agreement, but over the years, Phil just didn't pay him off. And, you know, I, by the calculations from Bones's camp, he was owed $900,000, which is a lot of money for a caddy, a lot of money for anybody. And uh, Phil just wouldn't make him whole. 
And in 2017, as their relationship was really deteriorating, it was pretty obvious that the end was coming. Uh, Phil cut him a check for $400,000, which even that was quizzical. If you're acknowledging you owe the guy the money, why not just pay it all out? And then finally, after Bones essentially fired Phil, uh, you know, Mickelson gave him another $400,000 to pay off the debt. But even that was not quite all of it by, by Bones' accounting. So it's, it's an interesting question, and it hovers over this the Saudi affair and also the insider trading case and all these other things like, you know, you just assume Phil could just wire him the money. What's the big deal? Same with just what he owed Billy Walters, the gambler who got mixed up in the insider trading. Um, you know, why is he chasing the Saudi money so hard? I mean, there's always been these questions, um, you know, how big is Phil's gambling and how, how deep does it go? And I was able to bring a lot of that reporting to the book. And you know, I think it suggests that maybe, uh, these these money issues are run a lot deeper than we could have imagined, given the scale of his success. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, Alan, from the reporting in the book. And I, I've read the beginning, uh, the prelude to it. I, I've read the um, the first chapter so far. Excellent work from what I've seen so far. But the money element with this, I just watched Shark, the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Greg Norman, who's obviously gotten entangled in this Saudi league also. And what you learn about Greg Norman is that he worships money. Uh, that shows that throughout the documentary. He was the first to have all of these branding agreements and everything else. So it's pretty easy to see his motivation uh, with this league in Saudi Arabia. And I keep going back to Phil Mickelson also. That, that's got to be the tie-in here. And it leads me to the question of just how desperate is Phil Mickelson for money right now. And I'm sure that you get into, with the anecdotes that you've uncovered, a lot of situations where he's gotten himself in trouble with money. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, that's all in the book. I mean, we're going to find out how desperate Phil is here shortly because he's at a real crossroads personally and professionally. And if he wants to get back in the good graces of the other players and of golf fans, it's pretty easy. All he has to do is pledge his allegiance to the PGA Tour and say, you know, I was just trying to negotiate a better deal for all of us. I might have overplayed my hand. I'm sorry, but I'm just here to make birdies and sign autographs. And and Evan will forgive him because you know, it, we're a forgiving nation. And, you know, as as you touched on, I mean, Tiger Woods has never been more popular and more beloved than he is right now, despite all his scandals. So there's certainly a road back for Phil. But if he goes all in with the Saudis and he takes their blood money after we know how he really feels about them, then it makes him just look like a mercenary and, you know, morally bankrupt one. And it's going to be a lot harder for sports fans to forgive him. So uh, what he decides here will, will give us more of an indication of how bad he needs their money. But, yeah, there, there's a lot of tales in the book about, about Phil's gambling. And there's a lot of it's in court papers and, and trial testimony. I mean, it's clear that millions and tens of millions of dollars floated out of his pockets and his bank accounts. And. So he's, he's made an incredible amount in his career. We know that. But the fundamental question is what's left. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a forensic auditor. I didn't, have, I didn't have access to all of Phil's financial documents. But I, I was, have snapshots that I think take us deep enough to understand that uh, he may have gotten himself in, in a pickle here. And, and this is where it gets like, it's almost like Shakespeare, right? I mean, after he wins a PGA last year, he's never been more popular. He's on top of the world. And, and yet he gets in bed, you know, makes a deal with the literal devil, the Saudis for this money. And now he's lost everything. And is it because of his vices? Is it because of his appetites that put him in this predicament? Um, 
it it could be it could be a really tragic end you know to what's been a 30 you know 30 years of, of goodwill and and popularity so what he does what he decides here saudis versus the pj tour is going to be very interesting and, and very enlightening Let's move on to a lighter subject or maybe a heavier subject based on what time period we're looking at with Phil Mickelson, his weight. Um, This is something that was talked about for years and years. He got himself in better shape. And, Alan, we've seen golfers of different sizes and shapes, and it seems like the bigger guys tend to have a sense of humor about their extra weight when they're golfing. Was Phil Mickelson sensitive about talk about his weight when he was a little bit pudgier early on in his career, or did he take it in stride? No, he, he was very sensitive about it. And what, what the reason why it's it's interesting and, and again revealing is because Phil, his whole career, has been measuring himself against Tiger Woods and vice versa. You know, uh, Mickelson's five and a half years older, and him and Tiger grew up separated by 100 miles of Southern California suburbia. And, and Phil had all the records in Southern California junior golf, and Tiger chased those and ultimately broke them. And then, of course, he surpassed Mickelson, who was forced to try and keep up. And whether or not you have to look like a Greek god to be a good golfer, you know, history says no. But Tiger, part of his maniacal training and work ethic, you know, he he brought this new physicality to the sport. And, you know, his upper body looked like a martini glass. And he just looked like a jock and he radiated that intensity. And and. Phil's kind of pudgy sloppiness. It almost became a metaphor for him not having the same commitment as Tiger and that, and that same discipline and that same drive. I mean, there's, there's a funny story in the book by Nick Faldo says, you know, in player dining one time, he saw Tiger who was eating steamed broccoli and grilled skinless chicken breast. And Phil had a triple cheeseburger with extra bacon and all these French fries. And in Faldo's mind, that was the difference right there between them. Because um, Phil had the same kind of physical talent, but he wasn't willing to pay the price that Tiger was. And so, um, on one hand, it, you know, golfers, as you say, come in, in all shapes and body sizes. But that that Phil wasn't willing to get himself in the kind of shape that Tiger was, it be, it became something bigger than that. And uh, of course, later in life, you know, Nicholson has embraced this um, this new health and wellness, and he's in great shape now. And it does make you wonder if, if he had done that 20 years earlier, could he could he have kept up with the Tiger a little bit better? Um, you know, it, who knows? We'll, we'll never answer that question, but it's an interesting subtext of their relationship. Alan Shipnick is our guest, uh, the author of the new biography on Phil Mickelson entitled Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. Alan, you detail the, the 61st Masters. Tiger wins at age 21. Phil missed the cut. And that was the turning point to where he had been very competitive against Tiger prior to that tournament, but after that tournament is whenever he decided to go back to the lab and recreate his game. What was it specifically about that weekend and the fact he didn't make it to the weekend that shaped how he eventually formed the rest of his career and went on to the major championships that he found? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Phil Mickelson is the greatest college golfer of all time. And he came out on tour and he was winning at a, a hall of fame clip and he was really considered the future of the game you know in in the mid 90s and then tiger turned pro and reshaped the whole sport in his image and it really forced phil to keep up and it was that master's victory was obviously critical to tiger's story and who he is and how he launched his career um 
uh, yeah, I mean, Phil knew that Tiger was at a different level and he was going to have to make a lot of changes to how he played the game if he was going to have any prayer of competing. But it's actually, it's a really interesting question. Like in, in a Tigerless world, does Phil Mickelson win more or less? And the knee-jerk assumption would be he'd win more because Tiger certainly denied him some very important trophies. Um, but I, I'm not sure about that because trying to chase Tiger, Phil had to access a different work ethic and a different desire. And he, he had to become a much better, more complete player. And, you know, I don't think there's any way he wins uh, a British Open and a course like Airfield if he hadn't embarked on this quest to be a, a more complete golfer. And if he hadn't, you know, embraced this this health and wellness as he win the PGA Championship at age 50, it seems unlikely. So he may have wound up around the same numbers with or without Tiger, but I don't think there's any doubt that Phil is a better golfer because of Tiger. To, uh, I've been thinking about this question ever since I heard that he sold his plane. Do you have a sense of his lifestyle now? Is he walking through airports and getting uh, in the B boarding group like the rest of us? <laughs> no, I mean, he, you know, Phil signed an endorsement deal with this, this fractional jet ownership company. And so he, he's still he's still jetting around in, his, in a in plane. But not, that's another brick at the wall trying to understand where Phil is, uh, why he needs his Saudi money. Because when he did sell the plane a couple of years ago, people were shocked because, you know, he'd christened it Air Phil and he had these special glasses made up that were blazing with Air Phil. And, I mean, he loved that that plane like it was his fourth child. And, you know, people close to Phil were amazed he sold it. And, again, you know, why? How much financial pressure was he feeling that compelled him to do that? Uh, it's it, it's it's all part of this trying to unravel this current moment where he's chasing the Saudi money so hard. How rich is his friendship with Jim Nance, and does he hit it off with Tom Brady the exact same way? I think so. I mean, it's a good it's a good parallel, and, and there's actually you know Nance is a voice in my book, and he has a great riff about how similar those two characters are in. in their, the boyish love they have for their sport and they never get tired of doing it. They never get tired of preparing to compete. And, um, you know, when, when you look at longevity in sports, Mickelson's had an unparalleled run. I mean, in 1990, when he was a college kid, he beat all the pros to win a tournament on the PGA Tour. And he, he was one of the best players in the world. And, you know, more than three decades later, he's still one of the best players in the world. Like, in the history of sports... Almost nobody's ever had a run like that. You know, we'll see how long Brady or LeBron James goes. And obviously they play more physically demanding sports. But, um, you know, what Phil's done is is unparalleled. And so, you know, it, it's, it, it is interesting that, those, that, that Nance is so close to both those guys. And he certainly is friends with Phil. You know, every year when the tournament's in Pebble Beach where Nance has a home, there's, he has this very select dinner for a handful of people. Phil's always there. And there's some funny tales in the book about that. And uh, so Nance does have a particular insight that they're in the same uh, fantasy football league. And there's a story that still makes me laugh about it's in the book, but where uh, last week of the season, Phil, he has uh, Alvin Kamara who goes for six touchdowns. And, and this is a couple of years ago, right? And it looks like, Mickelson has like a 99.9% chance of winning the whole league title. It's almost, it's almost no scenario where he can't win. And so he sends out this like 
flame emailed everybody in the, in the league, you know, just talking trash and, and boasting and bragging. And then on the last game of the season on Monday night, Jalen, like, I think it was, he got, I don't have the book in front of me, he gets like 39 fantasy points and, and someone beats Phil by one point. And Mickelson was so devastated and so mopey about it that Jim Nance thought it actually affected his play on the golf course. Like, he, he was so crushed. Um, the whole story is, is so funny at so many levels, but uh, it speaks to their friendship. It also speaks to how cocky Phil is. You know, he's definitely one to, like, spike the football on the two-yard line before he actually gets in the end zone. Like, he's, he's done that to himself a few times, uh, literally, and, you know, figuratively. Right, final 30 seconds. Uh, just what would be your best guess? When do you think we'll see him again? Man, it's like I said, he is at a crossroads. And that's why he didn't play the PGA Championship. Like he's, the ground has shifted beneath his feet so dramatically. And the upheaval between the tour and the Saudis is still unresolved. And it could be heading to court. And I think Phil's kind of waiting to I'm not sure he is. He might sit that one out. He might sit the U.S. Open out following week. I mean, it's it's really unknown. But he's in the hurt locker right now. Alan Shutnick has been our guest. Alan, uh, we can't wait to, to, to finish uh, the book itself. It, uh, fantastic thus far. Thank you for the time, the storytelling. And, and uh, again, uh, congrats on the success of this. Thank you. Alan Shipnick there. Uh, again, the, the, the book, uh, The Rip-Roaring and Unauthorized Biography of Golf's Most Colorful Superstar. It's entitled Phil. Uh, there will be several topics and discussion points coming out of this book as we get through it and finish it. Uh, but the behind-the-scenes stories, including just the practice rounds as a young Phil Mickelson is on the, on the course with uh, Azinger and others, and the betting that would go on on the practice rounds are some epic classic stories uh we'll get into that in in certainly weeks to come coming up though the nfl may be doing us all a huge favor we'll explain on outkick 360 another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. John McClain joins us in eight minutes across the OutKick network here on OutKick 360. Uh, one of the things that I'm sure he's thrilled with, and I mean, we will be too, I'm just a bit surprised by it, and I'll explain why in a second. The NFL may be doing away with the Pro Bowl game itself. We applaud it. But, I've but. been saying for 13, 14 years, get rid of the game, have a skills competition, have some big charitable events. And, so uh, let me let – me, I, I, and you know I agree with you. But the game is rated the whole time. That's been the issue. But it, it has. Scored TV ratings. Um, they, they have been losing viewership, and this tells you the mentality of the NFL. Um, Whenever we're watching the joint broadcast of the USFL on NBC and Fox, that's pulling around 3 million viewers. 
they pulled seven, nearly 7 million viewers on the Pro Bowl, and that's not good enough for the National Football League. Consider, like, so, and that's low. That, that is an extremely no, low number for that game. So they're recognizing that they may be jumping the shark, but at least they're smart enough to acknowledge it in advance instead of post. Well, that's a good job by them because maybe they, they, they understand maybe still late to it. what they draw for the draft, what they draw for the schedule release, what they draw, and everything's yeah. on the rise. Generally, this draft was probably down, and we've talked thoroughly about why. Next year, it'll be right back where it was. And listen, what they gave up in draft hype, they gained in all of the moves that went on and on with, with Russell Wilson getting traded, with uh, Tyreek Hill, with, with moves that yeah. took. So free agency grew at the expense of the draft. It wasn't like there was an NFL void. So all of the offseason stuff is trending up. The Pro Bowl's trending down. When's the last time the NFL had something trend down? So it's trending down. So they go, hey, we're not gonna, uh, we're gonna, not gonna sit here and watch something trend down. We we don't do trend down. So if we have something trending down, we'll get out. Well, that's good. They get out. Nobody I, likes it. I think this is the rare moment where this has nothing to do with the money because it's still a profitable yes. venture for the NFL. This is I applaud the NFL they don't because be they are making the decision bad. saying. We are choosing brand over profit. In this profit. one instance. No, 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 not profit. They're still going to have a Pro Bowl something. They're still going to make money off of that time slot. Idea. They are choosing, in this instance, they're brand over profit because they could put out this game year after year no, they're and continue to make money. They're going to put something on that Pro Bowl Saturday. They're just not going to call it a game. So there, there's going to be something as, as well, a part of this. Either either way, Vegas, they made a decision that they're not, was. They're just not. They going made. To let me the finish. Charade of a game. Let me finish my thought. They made a decision that was a terrible product that was making them money, and they are changing away from that terrible product because they're choosing brand over profit in this interest. But they now might, they're going to find something to make money off of. It might be better than instead, the game and be. But I, I still think I, I will give them a little bit of credit. Maybe I shouldn't. But I'll give them credit that people have bitched and bitched about this for long enough. They finally listened and said, you know what? It is a terrible TV product. Do, we'll do something different. They have to do better than the skills competition that they've been doing, which isn't good enough. Another NFL good news note. They're staying in Indianapolis for the Combine, 2023-2024. Brand over profit. That's a response Indy. to well, the Well, one thing I will agree on, Chad, with it's brand for more profit. They're not losing profit. Yeah. It's not like they're not profiting off of that game. They're just choosing to go bigger. John McClain next.